Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Asanda Matsanyane, Tabiso Lohoko and Tami Kouza. Our top stories in Africa rise and shine at this hour. The latest installment of letters by former South African president likely to ruffle a few political feathers. And South Africa's opposition to urban tolling alliance outer to brief Parliament's portfolio committee on transport later this morning. In economics, applications for Botswana's Telecommunications Corporation Limited shares are set to have opened to a strong reception from the public. And in sports news, Cameroon sink the DRC to book Chan quarterfinal. But first up, the news with Asanda Matsanyane. Good morning. Suicide bombers targeting a town in northern Cameroon have killed 32 people, wounding 66 on Monday. The the death toll was earlier reported as 25 in one of the worst attacks yet in the Central African nation. Nigeria's Boko Haram has been blamed for the attack, although there has been no immediate claim. According to state media, four explosions struck a busy market and entrances to the town of Bodo, which borders the Islamic insurgency strongholds in northeastern Nigeria. The death toll could rise further as a number of those taken to hospital are in a serious condition. Congo Republic's ruling party has officially designated incumbent President Denis Sassou as its candidate for the March election. Sassou Nguesso has ruled the oil-rich Congo for 31 of the past 36 years in two separate stretches. He is widely expected to win a comfortable victory in the polls, having secured the right to seek a third consecutive term in a constitutional referendum last year. Opposition parties boycotted October's constitutional referendum, during which security forces placed some party leaders under house arrest and fired on anti-government protesters, killing four people. While they have conditionally agreed to participate in the election, many observers expect at least some of them to pull out ahead of the March 20 poll date. Libya's internationally recognized parliament has voted to reject a unity government proposed under a United Nations-backed plan to resolve the country's political crisis and armed conflict. The rejection is a setback in efforts to heal Libya's deep divides. Since 2014, Libya has had two competing parliaments and governments, one based in the capital Tripoli and the other in the east. Both are backed by loose alliances of armed groups and former rebels who helped topple Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. Representatives from both sides of Libya's political divide signed the UN-backed plan in Morocco in December last year. United Nations Secretary-General has expressed concern after parties in South Sudan missed last week's deadline to set up a transitional government. Ban Ki-moon has also appealed to African countries attending the African Union Summit in Ethiopia to save the peace process. South Sudanese President Salva Kiir refused to rescind his unilateral decision of establishing 28 new states and as a result, rebel leader Rik Macha stayed away. Kerr's spokesperson Ateni Wekateni maintains the presidency is not prepared to rescind its decision. It is unfortunate that the government of transition and national unity was not formed in accordance with the timetable. The president is not ready to rescind the order. That will be unthinkable. The South African government is in a race against time to pronounce its stance on the legalization of rhino horn trade. The deadline for proposals for the upcoming CITES summit is set for April. South Africa, as the host, has the largest recorded rhino poaching incidents worldwide, with a total of 1,175 rhino poached last year. Spokesperson for the country's Environmental Affairs Department, Albi Mudise. 
the ministerial committee will soon meet to consider the reports of the committee and uh, will engage with the particular reports and will formulate the process as well as recommendations for cabinet decision and approval. Because remember, the, the committee was entrusted with the responsibility of engaging extensively with a number of stakeholders across the country to look at all the pros and the cons and the, to listen to all sides uh, and then coming out of that particular process to compile a report to the Interministerial Committee, which will meet soon. So the next leg is for Cabinet to engage the report. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Mazzaunyani. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8 6 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. South Africa's former President Thabo Mbeki says he never fired the country's president, Jacob Zuma, as his deputy. He says it was Zuma who volunteered to step down. This information is contained in the latest of his letters published on social networks. In this installment, he also dismisses the notion that he centralized power. Senior political reporter Angela Buluana compiled this report. However, as president of the republic... I've come to the conclusion that the circumstances dictate that in in the interest of the Honorable Deputy President, the government, our young democratic system and our country, it would be best to release Honorable Jacob Zuma from his responsibilities as Deputy President of the Republic and member of the Cabinet. Former President Thabo Mbeki announcing the dismissal of his then-deputy, Jacob Zuma. But now Mbeki says he was just acting on Zuma's request to step down and focus on his financial advisor Shabir Sheikh's corruption trial that implicated him. But Mbeki does not use his own words. He instead quotes his former Director General, Reverend Frank Chikani's book, Eight Days in September. He states as correct Chikani's version that the NEC had reluctantly accepted Zuma's decision to step down following a meeting that lasted till the early hours. Mbeki also says Chikani was correct when he wrote that some were determined to spread the lie that it was the NEC that fired Zuma. This is a quote from today's installment. Thus, as planned for a purpose, was born the complete fabrication that the NGC, the delegates representing the branches of the ANC, had defeated a decision born of the political conspiracy of the NEC against then-ANC Deputy President Jacob Zuma to remove him from his position as ANC Deputy President, as I had removed him from his position as Deputy President of the Republic. Mbeki also goes into detail to dismiss the notion that he centralized power. He says consultation with the ANC was so entrenched that the ANC did not only decide on policy but also had a say on cabinet and premier appointments. He says like the Reconstruction and Development Policy, RDP, the controversial growth, employment and redistribution policy, GEAR, was endorsed by the ANC. Kosatu blamed GEAR for the jobless economic growth, labeling it Mbeki policy. Friedman, on the other hand, says Mbeki he cannot escape responsibility for the policies of his presidency. 
Look, throughout the letter, he is trying to make the point that what is, he's accused of what, what, what are painted as his policies were obviously ANC policies. Of course, what his detractors will say is, yes, of course, the ANC formally adopted them, but you actually forced the, the ANC or you pressed the ANC uh, to adopt them. That doesn't really settle the argument. There are still seven more to go with no clarity on when he will put out a letter on his AIDS policy that saw his government taken to court and facing local and international criticism. It's 8.10 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now Kenya has sent more than more Kenyan Defence Forces soldiers to Somalia in its continuing search, rescue and recovery operation. This is according to a communication from Chief of Defence Forces General Samson Mwatete. Troops from various KDF divisions across the country were assembled and sent to the war-torn country to conduct operations in Al-Shabaab bases at al Ade and other towns in the Gedo region. On the line, we have Kwezi Mkubisa, Coordinator, Somalia Project Initiative of the African Center for the Constructive Resolution of Disputes Accord. Good morning, Kwezi, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Thank you for having me. Now, Kwezi, do you think that Al-Shabaab is gaining the upper hand in this battle to occupy Somalia and to terrorize neighboring Kenya? I think that if we were to look into the developments over the last couple of days and indeed weeks, if not months, we should be concerned about the kind of calculation that has been made to indicate that uh, the terror group is in one way or another being defeated. I think that we need to review our understanding of defeating not just Al-Shabaab as a group, but terror or terrorism. This, it, is, it is highly uh, impossible uh, to come to the conclusion that a few uh, territorial gains made by AMISOM in Somalia indicate an end of Al-Shabaab. Because it's only a military response, it's only a security uh, intervention. It does not address the ideology that actually makes it possible for the group to recruit. It does not uh, address the socio-economic environment that allows the group's efforts to capture territory as well as to force the communities to, to, to form part of their territorial gains in that particular country. It's the long and short answer of it then, Lulu, is that it is very difficult to tell. But we need to have faith in looking at the plans, that the broader plans that the African Union has in its deployment. They are not only addressing just killing a few personalities or taking over uh, territory. They have got a much broader plan that speaks to addressing the ideological basis of, of, of extremism as well as conversing with the local communities that end up being a, a basis for Al-Shabaab. Now, Kwezi, just bearing that in mind and everything that, uh, um, for instance, the African Union has come up with um, and and the regional uh, uh, conglomerate, the ECOWAS or ECAS, and looking at what the United Nations also does with regards to um, terrorism or terrorist attacks, not only on the African continent, but globally, the reaction time there seems to be a problem there. What is it that needs to be done to ensure that there's quick reaction and they go out there and, and, and just give the, 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 the idea or the, uh, just show the world or show the people of the world, all the people who are being terrorized in those countries that, listen, we are taking action and uh, we will ensure that we get rid of these terrorist organizations. What is being done incorrectly that is making this so difficult to happen? I don't think uh, we particularly need to look at, at, the, at the challenge of terrorism and the response to it as right or wrong. I think that perhaps we need to look at what is effective and what is proven less effective. Uh, if you look at a global level, I think that uh, the number of uh, mistakes that have been committed, both in analyzing the sources of um, why, why terror groups find fertile ground in the countries that they operate in. I mean, what is, what, what, what is it that attracts young people or even a, a community to say that we rather side or create space for these terror groups to operate in our communities. I think 
our inability as the international community to assess and analyze that and, and, and appropriately respond to that has led to us as the international community just simply thinking that uh, with the presence of a, a mighty military uh, deployment, uh, uh, the young people will choose not to fight uh, for these terror groups or these communities will choose to, to side with the international community's deployment. On the continent, I think what we have seen is that, uh, by and large, perhaps if I may start, is lack of coverage of some of the most courageous and, and decisive decision-making that has been done to respond, for example, to instances of Boko Haram in, in Central West Africa, and of course Al-Shabaab in East Africa, and of course in situations such as Mali and elsewhere. Uh, what the African Union has been doing consistently, I have thought, has been to, to mobilize those that are near nearer to the terror centers, if you may put it as such, and actually make sure that that deployment finds uh, uh, authorization or legitimization through a, 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 a resolution of the, Af- of the African Union. Resources are found in order to provide the support, and you do put on the ground a military security response, but it doesn't end there. I think if you look at Somalia, which is what we're discussing specifically today, you will see that it's not only the African Union force that is actually uh, uh, defining the continental response. You've got the Indian Governmental Agency for Development, which is the regional economic community organization of that part of the, of the continent. They are the ones, for example, that have moved the discussion away from just simply hunting al-Shabaab, but also on helping the fledging uh, federal government of Somalia start to prepare for elections that should take place later on this year. Whether these are the appropriate responses or not, it's not up to us as the international community as much as terrorism is such a pain and, 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 and a concern for us. But it is about understanding how much are the Somalis or the people that are affected by these terrorist uh, attacks uh, responding in terms of creating the socio-economic justice in their, in their countries, as well as uh, creating a space for the emergence of a legitimate security forces. Because the problems that we have in Somalia are not exclusively just uh, the, the importation of terrorism from other parts of the world. That cannot be the only narrative. So what we have globally has shown that we have made the mistakes of understanding where terrorism comes from and how to respond to it. And on the continent, it's not entirely all gloom or all in Asia on the part of our regional organizations and continental bodies. Now, Kwezi, looking at uh, some Kenyans who are affected by the terrorist, uh, terrorism that is taking place in their country and their neighbor, um, have called for the Kenyan Defense Force to withdraw, from, withdraw their troops from Somalia. Now, will this stop the attacks by al-Shabaab in Kenya? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, we must acknowledge the, the sacrifices that the Kenyan people have made uh, through the provision of of their sons and daughters to be part of the deployment of the African Union to Somalia. And it is to be expected that a certain portion of the population, or at least the political machinery in the country, would be concerned about continued participation. And I think it is something that for the, for the Kenyans, which are relatively a vibrant society, to discuss and come to, to, to a discussion whereby, amongst other things I would expect, they would be weighing what are, the, what are the likely consequences of a withdrawal at this point in time. You'll recall that a huge portion of Kenya on the eastern part is made up of, of, of local Somalis and has been a recipient or rather has been a stage of some of the terror attacks that emanate out of Somalia. So these are some of the things that should weigh upon the decision-making and the broader discussions that Kenyans must have. Indeed, the withdrawal by Kenya would have a significant impact on the operational ability of, 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 of the African Union in that particular country. But I think uh, more than anything else, uh, there is some very enlightened thinking emerging uh, from countries that participate in deployments to respond to instances such as Al-Shabaab, whereby we understand now that we're talking of regional conflict systems. So it cannot be that if you just simply lock off Kenya, uh, so- Somalia uh, out of uh, uh, its neighbors, you've solved the problem for yourself as a neighbor to that country. We've seen it. I mean, the globalization of, the econ- of, 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 of economics, of trade, of ideas doesn't end there. It also speaks about uh, transnational capabilities of, of terrorism. So these are things that indeed the Kenyans, I, I believe, are competent in, in discussing in terms of their interests and the consequences to themselves, as well as the African Union in terms of responding to any possibility of any of the current troop deploying countries deciding to withdraw or to at least uh, uh, minimize uh, their contribution.
Now, Kwezi, we've seen an upsurge in terrorism in East and West Africa. Um, For instance, yesterday, at least 25 people were reported to have been killed in uh, suicide bomb bomb attacks um, in northern Cameroon. Last week, it was Burkina Faso. Um, The previous week, I think it was, which Burkina Faso was something that was unprecedented. It's never happened before. Now, a a luxury hotel in Mali was attacked a, a few months ago. Is this upsurge in terrorism in the east and west of Africa, are these um, groups feeding off each other's successes? I think there are quite a number of layers to, to, to your question. I think that I would like first to first address myself to, to an upsurge of, of, of terrorism. I think that uh, I think all of us uh, would like to see a continent and member, a constituent member countries that are peaceful. However, if our countries do not have socio-economic justice, meaning that uh, the national resources of the country, the governance, uh, are not uh, uh, well addressed, are not beneficial for everybody, this creates false lines that can be exploited by terrorists. Uh, these are false lines that can be used in perpetrating, or rather in perpetuating uh, the, the extremism ideology that says, if you want to see your country uh, fixed or being fairer or being just, uh, and you have failed to do it uh, in a, in a, in a through dialogue and other peaceful means, then terrorism is the way to go. That's the first layer that I think that in all of these countries and many others that have not seen terrorist attacks, we need to be mindful of the fault lines and how those fault lines sow the seeds uh, for fertile ground or rather for or fertile, fertile acceptance of extremist ideology. Now, the second layer, which I think is important that you, you raised towards the tail end of your question, speaks to uh, 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 is it something that uh, we were we, seeing only just recently? I, I don't think so. I think if one looks into the the the, 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 the history of uh, the recent history of, of the continent, indeed the, the configuration of regional organisations, uh, including the African Union, on how to maintain peace and, 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 and security on the continent, terrorism is always featured in there. And I think this speaks to the fact that. Wherever we, 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 we may look at at this point in time, whether it's, it's East Africa where you've got the uh, Al-Shabaab, West Africa where you've got, uh, West Central Africa where you've got Al-Shabaab, uh, Mali, uh, Burkina Faso, as you recently pointed out. And of course, uh, in the north of, of, of our continent, uh, you know, that Libya belt where, where there is a lot of change there. Uh, what we need to, to, to take heart at is the fact that the continental board of the African Union, despite many criticisms that at times is very legitimate, is actually responding to these issues. Take Libya. There is an African Union position and policy towards what needs to be done in Libya in order to contain what is happening over there from bringing further terrorism. If you look into the Boko Haram in Central and West Africa, it is not outsiders that have gone and created a, a military response to the, to the insecurity visited. It's African countries coming together across regions. Uh, uh, taking the lead on these matters. If you look at uh, last day, perhaps also in the East Africa, I mean, the configuration of Burundians, Ugandans, Ethiopians, at some stage, Shibutians, uh, and Kenyans to respond to Somalia speaks to the fact that Africans are no longer going to leave this issue unattended. And they're not going to wait for somebody elsewhere to come in. If there's going to be partnership on these issues, there's going to be African leadership on it. And we're seeing that. Is it going to end anytime soon? Indeed, it is not until all of our countries address the fault lines or they create spaces for the fault, fault lines to be entertained and resolved through, to, through dialogue. Kwezi, unfortunately, we have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us. And that was Kwezi Mkubisa, Coordinator, Somalia Project Initiative of the African Center for the Constructive Resolution of Disputes Accord. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka. 
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. Now South Africa's Labour Federation, COSATU, has taken its fight against the new tax amendment laws to the ANC's NEC Le Chotla in Pretoria. A three-day meeting which began yesterday is focusing on the current economic situation, education and the upcoming local government election. The Lechotla is an annual meeting that determines government programs and priorities to ensure consistency between government work and the ANC following the January 8th statement. Senior political journalist Amos Pajo has more. The meeting comes as Kosatu says it is getting ready for a massive strike to protest the new pension tax laws. It says it was never consulted at NEDLEC. Kosatu President Dumotlamini says it will raise the matter at the Lekhotla. We have come here to engage with the African National Congress on that matter when we have an opportunity, hoping it shall be provided. It's a very topical issue. Everybody is focusing on it. We're coming to the ANC, which is the party that we are in an alliance with. That is the spirit we're coming in here, and we hope, indeed, the matter is taken very seriously by the ANC. The tax laws have angered unions across the public and private sector with threats of mass action, raising fears of mass resignations. Protracted strike action could further weaken the already struggling economy and rating agency has already warned that another policy mistake could see the country further downgraded. Lamini says they are hoping for an amicable solution. There should be a way, but remember these are, are global issues too. And also the fact that uh, workers have been in an economic squeeze for ages. We acknowledge the dire straits situation right now. We all have to stand together to fix the economy. We must stop making careless mistakes. We must ensure that we close ranks as a nation to face with this economic situation. The ANC says it is willing to talk to COSATU, Secretary General Gwere Mantashe. The first thing is that there is agreement that because public service is already on pension funds, these amendments is not affecting that. Two, in terms of these amendments, anything that is already in the provident fund is not going to be tempered with. Uh, therefore, the effectiveness of this, uh, of this law will be first match and anything that is debated about it will be accumulation of new money from the 1st of March 2016. Two issues, though, should be debated. COSAD is very eager that we say we finalize the debate on comprehensive social security, and we think that is uh, correct, but it cannot be a condition for preservation. But it should be accelerated. We support that. Secondly, we, we must clarify if the issue is about preservation or not. That debate should take place because if we say no preservations, Uh, The experience tells us that that is a life sentence on poverty. You work and work and work and you get a lump sum, you blow it away, and you drift back into poverty. Mantashe has shrugged off concerns by COSATU that although they will campaign for the ANC in the local government elections, it will be a difficult task because of the unpopular tax regime. They resolved in the Congress that they are going to support the ANC in these elections. And that is the decision-making structure of COSATU. Uh, only a Congress can change that decision. So the rumors of they find it difficult here and there, I take them as rumors. I'm Amos Paro in Pretoria. Our headlines up next with Asanda Mazzaunyani.
Good morning. Suicide bombers targeting a town in northern Cameroon have killed 32 people and wounded 66. Congo Republic's ruling party officially designates incumbent President Denis Sassou as its candidate for the March election. And United Nations Secretary-General expresses concern after parties in South Sudan missed last week's deadline to set up a transitional government. Your news headlines here on Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you, Asanda. South Africa's opposition to Urban Tolling Alliance, ARTA, will brief Parliament's Portfolio Committee on Transport later this morning on alternative mechanisms for financing ETOLs. ARTA was asked to brief the committee on potential consequences of the planned ETOL regulatory amendments, concerns around toll collections, possible collusion in the Gauteng Freeway Improvement Project and lack of court action against this behaviour. Alta has been fighting the ETOL system in Gauteng for a number of years. It all began when the GFIP was launched in 2007, and after several court challenges to halt the project, ETOLs eventually went live at the end of 2013. Chairperson at Alta, Wayne Duvenage, earlier joined us on the line. Well, this issue has been going on for a long time. I think what we want to do is set the scene for Parliament and say, well, why is this opposition? Why has the scheme failed, completely failed? It's there for all intents and purposes of funding the bonds with less than 20% of the revenue collected, less than 10% of the users paying, the scheme is not settling the bonds. So why does government find itself in this predicament? It puts all the laws in place and yet nothing is happening. So you can't just legislate efficiency and legislate workability and popularity. If the public are against it for the right reasons, we want to explain and show why this resistance has developed over time and then going forward what does one do when does one make the hard decision to pull the plug on a failed scheme a scheme that even though you have the law on your side has the biggest you know public tax revolt in our new democracy and by moving and forcing this matter into license renewals they are going to invite the tax revolt into another area which is what this country doesn't need right now now wayne do you believe that something can be done. The gantries are up. The system is up. The system is running. Mm. People are getting Mm. invoiced. Will they be able to reverse this? Because bearing in mind, a debt has to be paid. Yes, and we know that. And, you know, we don't believe that public infrastructure falls out of the sky and people shouldn't have to pay for it. And we believe and know that they have to pay for this. Now, let me liken this discussion. We often get it, but the gantry's up and it's running, so let's give it a bash. And therefore, it's working. It's like saying that, you know, the lights are on at my disco and the music's playing, but there's no one on the dance floor. And that's what's happening here. If you cannot convince the public that this is the right thing to do, and the scheme works, by the way, and we've seen it working in many parts of the world, but in the context of this environment and the way Sanwar have behaved and the way government have not listened to the people... Well, you have an unjust scheme in place, and filled with deceit, by the way, filled with irrationality, inefficiencies, high costs, high collusion in the freeways, which have not been dealt with by Sanro, and so many things that says to the public, you have every right to stand your ground and not participate, and that's what they've chosen to do. So government has to make a hard decision, and the only decision they've got to do is acknowledge they got it completely wrong, the research will show that, and that they have to pull the plug and start again. And if they get it right, and if they can convince the people it's the right thing to do, I think they've done too much damage to do that, then we can forge ahead. Now, on the other matter of, well, how do we pay the bonds back? Let me explain that the fuel levy, and we keep coming back to this matter, is the most efficient user-paid scheme. It already has raised an additional amount of money by this year, fuel levy earnings from the public and from the motorists, to pay for three counting free improvement projects in cash every year. That's just since the Freeway project was finished built. So 
the money is there. It's not as if it isn't there. Government has increased the fuel levy in the last eight years by 92%. 92%. It is a massive increase. 55 billion rand pours into government's coffers from motors. And this notion that, well, why should other people in the country pay for Gauteng's roads? I mean, it's absolute nonsense. Gauteng's freeways are South Africa's freeways. Gauteng, the small province, generates three to four times more than what it receives from National Treasury. It is the breadbasket of South Africa. In fact, if Gauteng, we always said if Gauteng needs six-lane highways to get people to and from work and productivity going in Gauteng, then give it to them because they get that money back. The country gets that money back. Government gets that money back threefold. So, yeah, I mean, it's there. It's just ludicrous that this argument keeps going that the gantries are there, so let's just, let's just pay each other. But it's just wrong. Now, Wayne, let's go back to December, where when you raised issues surrounding the Gazette published by the Transport Department as an attempt by the South African National Roads Agency to force e-toll payments. Why do you believe this? What's happening is Archer, it has its challenges already. I mean, seven years ago, I, I recall the headline in 2007, I think it was, that Archer was going to be rolled out, and it still hasn't. It's a very difficult administrative process, but it's a good one. And if we can get that right and remove the complexity, what we'll be able to do in this country is introduce law enforcement around road safety matters. This is speeding, going to red traffic lights, driving drunk and all that. We need to curb this to bring our fatalities down. So it's a good system. Now, what Sanwell are trying to do through the government is treat the non-payment of ETOLs like a traffic offence. And if you don't pay your ETOL bill, well, they're going to withhold your licence when you go and renew them. We are saying to government, if this is how you want to try and force an unjust policy, one that has not worked, by the way, into just scheme, you're going to invite the tax revolt into vehicle licensing. You're going to justify the fact that people will say, well, then I will drive an unlicensed car. Now, we're not advocating that that should happen. What we're saying is it's going to happen if government tries to force this uh, through the R2 legislation. So we're saying leave ETOLs out of R2 and out of the vehicle licensing Make your decision on ETOLs properly. Eat the humble pie. You've made the mistake. Stop the nonsense. Let's move forward with government, find the solutions, and pay for our roads in an efficient manner. How has compliance been since the launch of the system in 2013? Well, the maximum it got to was 40% revenue collection. We put that down to about 30% actual cars going under. That was in June 2014. When the public was threatened, remember the SMSs, you will get a criminal record, you will be summoned for non-payments and all that. Mm. Under that duress, Sanwell managed to get 30%, 35% of the public to pay, giving them about 40% of the revenue. It peaked there, and then it never grew. It's now down to 9% of vehicles, giving rise to 20% of their revenue, because mainly the big transport and the and freight companies, so it's, there's a higher yield there. So... What we're saying to you is 9%, less than 1 in 10 cars going under those gantries are paying. These schemes need over 80 to 90% to survive around the world. Anything under 80% and they fail over time. So if that's not enough of clarity and example to government that they cannot force and coerce this matter, even with threatening people with criminal records, it's now dropped to 9%. You're flogging a dead horse here. That was Wayne Duvenage, a chairperson of the Opposition to Urban Tolling Alliance, earlier joining us on the line. A new study released by SeedSystem.org says most African smallholder farmers are actively shopping for seeds, but mainly through local informal markets largely ignored by seed initiatives. Dr. Sean Maguire, co-author of the study and senior lecturer at the School of International Development at the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom, says the study's findings indicate that supplying smallholder farmers with a wider selection of crop varieties is a significant and untapped business opportunity for both formal and informal seed sellers. Our findings come from six countries, five of them in sub-Saharan Africa, and it's the largest study on seed systems that we know of. So we looked at 2,600 farmers and about 10,000 different seed transactions, and we looked at where farmers got seed of the most recent season. And the key finding is that the most important source of seeds for small farmers across many crops is local markets. So these are local informal markets, often open air or weekly markets, that will sell grain and other household necessities. 
but this is also where people go, in many cases, to get seed. The other key finding related to that is formal sector agro-input shops, places where you go to get certified seed and packages, those only supply about 2% of all the seed planted across our sample. And in some countries like Malawi or Zimbabwe, it's a little bit higher. But in those countries, it's maybe about 10 or 12% at most. And it's those formal channels that are getting most of the support from the donors and from private sector. And they're useful, but they're not, for smallholder farmers, that's not where they're going to get seed. Now, Doctor, this situation, for how long has it been prevalent in the way in which you have explained? Well, we don't know for sure, to be honest. I mean, our study goes back five or six years. But we think there's very good reasons why farmers have been using local markets for a long time. I mean, these markets provide farmers with a wide range of different crops, legumes, root vegetables, and other cereals, not just maize, and they can work over long distances. So if there's not seed available locally, markets can help link up to other areas. But this is, you know, people are also becoming more cash-oriented, and that may be a factor. So this is the situation that could have led to the state of affairs? Well, possibly. I mean, the point is, what we're concerned with is that in most countries, farmers don't have really good access to innovation, to new varieties. And, for example, in southern Africa, this year with El Nino coming up, it's probably going to be a very dry year. And farmers need to diversify away from just maize to other crops, particularly grain legumes and pulses, things like beans, cowpeas, bambara nuts, ground nuts. And there's lots of useful new research and new varieties that are coming from the public sector that could help farmers have more choices and more options, but they're not reaching farmers. And so our concern is that, well, farmers are getting seed, but are they getting always the varieties that might benefit them? Are they missing? Is there a missing link? And we see that very much in the channels that are getting supported, these formal sector uh, commercial markets are not really supplying legumes at all. So that suggests there's a real opportunity to help informal markets deliver new varieties to farmers more effectively because the farmers are using those channels already. Prior to this uh, new studies find, what could be read or learned with regards to the way in which they used to get access to seeds? Was it because of the seeds that they saved from the previous harvests, or have they been buying seeds from season to season? Some farmers are buying seeds from season to season. I think it's important to note that farmers do save seed, of course, and farm-save seed is important. But for some crops, like legumes, people don't necessarily save their seed or save much of it because legumes are hard to store. And they may have good reasons to sell all of their harvest at harvest time for cash. And also, maybe they don't know how the next season is going to play out. And they say, well, I'll wait to see how the rains come and I'll buy seed then. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of reasons why local markets may become more important than own save seed. The thing is that farmers are spending money for seed now in markets and, you know, modest amounts. And that says that allows opportunities. If they're paying for seed, if research can provide farmers new varieties that they think are worth growing and they're happy to pay for seed anyway, then that suggests some real opportunities to help get useful varieties to farmers that need them. You know, it's a good news story in that sense, but we need to use these markets strategically. Talking about the reliance on formal markets to deliver critical crop varieties while also refuting assumptions that most farmers rely on uh, saved seeds, what could be said about that? Well, I think there's been a, a belief in the past from especially civil society organizations and some researchers that... The farmers we're talking about, which are small-scale farmers, 
you know, in fairly poor situations across Africa. The assumption is that these types of farmers, most of the seed they get is from their harvest, and they're entirely kind of a closed system. But what we find is that, you know, maybe about a third of what they plant is saved. But more than half of what they plant, they purchase from markets. And that was Dr. Sean Maguire, co-author of a study and senior lecturer at the School of International Development at the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. It is becoming expensive for Zambia to service its current debts because of borrowing to maintain high government expenditure. Chairperson of the Parliamentary Committee on Estimates, Higvi Hamadudu, says all plans announced to cut government expenditure because of the current economic woes are theoretical. Simwinga says depending on borrowing to finance high government expenditure, it is not sustainable. South Africa's National Education, Health and Allied Workers Union has urged its members not to resign from their jobs over the new tax amendment laws. The union tackled various issues affecting its members, including its campaign against outsourcing at universities, the recently signed white paper on the national health insurance and the new tax legislation. Busi Chimomba reports. Now, how has joined the chorus of voices calling for the repeal of the new tax laws? It restricts workers to withdrawing just a third of their pension as a lump sum and forces them to put the rest in annuities and access them through a monthly allowance. Rwanda's horticulture industry has fetched more than 6.1 million US dollars in the 11 months to November last year, an increase from 4.3 million dollars realized in the same period in 2014. According to the National Agricultural Exports Board report, this was an increase of 41.3%. The sector exported 4.5 million kilograms of horticulture produce between July and November. Ghana's central bank has kept its benchmark policy rate at 26%, citing moderation in the pace of consumer inflation. The West African nation is under a three-year aid program with the International Monetary Fund to support its economy. The Bank of Ghana had set the current rate in November, its highest level in 12 years. Crude futures have extended falls to retest the 30 US dollar a barrel level. Global benchmark brand crude lost 44 cents to 30.06 dollars a barrel. US crude fell 52 cents to $29.82 a barrel, after hitting a session low at $29.61. The South African rand is trading at 16.45 to the US dollar, 11.46 Botswana Pula, 11.22 in Zambia, 0.70 British pound, 0.92 euro, gold $1.112, platinum $8.56 an ounce, brand crude oil $30.05 a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts and in our latter-day snows. It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, lashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the dragon's back, the soil-colored waters of the Likwa, Ikreli, Lotuga, and the sands of the Kalahad, 
have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theatre of the day. Our economics update up next with Tami Kuza. Yeah. Thanks for joining us once again in your sports. Let's start with soccer, where Nigeria will continue their march for the first ever Chen Crown, should they at least pick a draw with Guinea in a final group clash in Rubavo this Tuesday. The kickoff time of that match is at 4 p.m. Central African time. Nigeria are top of the group with four points from two matches. Both Tunisia and Guinea are on two points after they drew their first two matches, while Niger are bottom of the standings on a point. Victory by any match in this Tuesday will guarantee the Eagles' top spot in Group C and got a final date with the second-place team in Group D, which will be determined when qualified Zambia and Mali face off on Wednesday. And yesterday, Cameroon beat DR Congo 3-1 to reach the quarterfinals of the African Nations Championship in Rwanda. The indomitable Lions advanced to the last eight as Group B winners, with DR Congo going through as runners-up. In another match, Angola beat Ethiopia 2-1 in the other Group B game to record their first points of the tournament as both sides bowed out. Cameroon will play Ivory Coast in the next round, and DR Congo face hosts Rwanda. Both games will be played this Saturday. And in Kenya, the much-anticipated Football Kenya Federation FKF branch elections will take place this Tuesday as planned by the Electoral Process Board. Sources close to the deliberations have confirmed that the board was given a strict decree that the elections cannot be postponed anymore and therefore Tuesday's county ballot will proceed. Professor Edwin Wamukoya is a board member. The process is smooth, it's going on very well, very nicely and many of the sub of the branches that have been verified have confirmed the uh, goodness of the process so i want to encourage everybody that we are set for the elections fair free transparent on 26th uh, of this month and in West Africa, Ivorian international soccer star Didier Drogba will not return to Chelsea this season, according to the club's interim manager, Gus Hiddink. The Ivorian had been widely expected to accept a coaching role at Stanford Bridge, but has now decided to see out the remainder of the season with his current club, Montreal Impact. When Hiddink was asked if Drogba would be coming back, he said, not in the near future. On the short term... Yes, but in the longer term, we talked about uh, that all players who are of big influence or big image for the for this club, they are welcome. And so it's there's no time issue on this. So uh, I wish him all the best now in one of his latest seasons, I think. And further afield, Gianni Infantino's bid for the presidency of the World Soccer's governing body FIFA to lead it out of the worst graft scandal in its history was given a lift when the Swiss lawyer won overwhelmingly backing from Europe's football associations. Infantino confirmed that he was running for the FIFA presidency only and there was no deal in place for him to take any other position in the organization as had been suggested in some quarters. Definitely, I will go uh, until the end. Um, this is about an election for the post of FIFA president, which is the most important position in world football. This has to be taken respectfully and seriously, and uh, I'm candidate for the presidency and only for the presidency, not for any other position. And with the support I have, I'm even more uh, responsible in uh, my campaign to become president of FIFA. And finally, in tennis, Milos Raonic fought off a spirited comeback from a fourth seed Stan Wawrinka to send the 2014 champion crashing out of the fourth round of the Australian Open 6-4, 6-3, 5-7, 4-6 and 6-3 on Tuesday. Chris Powers has more. A day of few surprises, but much drama. We lost the number four seed and French Open champion Stan Wawrinka, beaten in five sets by the revitalised Milos Raonic. But perhaps the biggest story was Andy Murray's win over the top Australian Bernard Tomic. Billed as the match of the day because of Tomic's status for the home nation, it was won by Murray in three tight sets, 6-4, 6-4, 7-6. But only afterwards did Murray reveal the emotional toll taken on him by the collapse of his father-in-law Nigel Sears during Saturday night's action. 
Murray made it clear that if the news about Sears' heart scare had been bad, he'd have pulled out of the tournament, and he gave the impression that he woke up this morning still not sure whether he'd take to the court against Tomic. But having decided to play, he focused on the match and pulled out a very impressive win. Murray now plays David Ferrer, who put out John Isner, while Raonic faces Gail Monfils. In the women, Victoria Azarenka remains on course for a third Australian title after beating Barbara Streetseva. While there was a very good result for South Africa's Raven Klassen in the doubles, he and Rajiv Ram beat Bob and Mike Bryan in three sets to reach the quarterfinals. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, the latest instalment of letters by former South African president likely to ruffle a few political feathers, and South Africa's opposition to urban tolling outer to brief Parliament's Portfolio Committee on Transport later this morning. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or tweet us at Africa. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Chant by Foreplay.
Good morning and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance broadcast.